Hello, ghouls and gals. Here we are at yet another doorstep into a gruesome tale. This time it is the seventh episode of Mania. But I do have to make some apologies in advance here. I am a little bit under the weather, so my voice may be a little bit more nasally than usual. But let's get right into it. One of the things I hope to bring to the table is variety, both in subject matter but also in episode length. So for today's story, I'm keeping it a little bit more brief than usual. So please, enjoy. Once more, medieval Europe found itself a fitting stage. A stage for hell to manifest through human hands. This time during King Henry IV's siege upon Paris in 1590. The siege lasted through the spring and summer during France's Wars of Religion. A year prior, King Henry III had been assassinated, and the rightful heir to the throne was Henry of Navarre, a Protestant. Back then, this distinction was quite the cause for chaos. The chieftains of the Catholic League were in uproar about this. Having a Protestant instead of a Catholic claiming the throne was simply out of the question. So today, we are focusing on just one of the consequences of that feud. In command of an army of 20,000 men, Henry IV led his forces to the outskirts of Paris, and thus began his siege. But we're not here for the political nor the religious quarrels of the time, however fascinating. No, we are here for the very real flesh and blood stories that arose in such a time because of such turmoil. But it's not just us who quickly lose interest in who's to blame and what caused what. Religious and political sparks between this siege quickly lost importance, as did all luxuries, status, and the taken-for-granted details of nobility and common life alike. A city under siege was not just problematic for the obvious reasons. Imagine, for example, just what would happen if you locked several dogs in a cage and refused to feed them. Humans, as it turns out, don't act much different at all, as you'll find. During these times, sieges had diabolical consequences. Is that too obvious? <laughs> Both for the invading and the defending forces. Diseases loved, just loved, to cling to marching armies. The armies themselves, though romanticized today with knights in armor and pennants flapping in the sunset breeze, were often really malnourished, sick-ridden, and living off of the scraps they pillaged from villages and towns en route to their destinations. The majority of soldiers themselves were men either threatened on pain of death or wrenched from the gallows steps to be conscripted into battles they had no true motive to fight. And if that isn't disillusioning enough, soldiers got passed around from side to side depending on who won which battles or lost certain conquests. Not only did these men have no real reason to fight these wars other than survival or perhaps the chance at pillaging or sacking a city, few of them had any passion for whatever side they were dying for in the first place. 
as long as they were on the winning side. As long as the bloodied blade wasn't pointing down their neck, that was what mattered. And that's precisely the point. The foot soldier was a nobody. They mattered not at all. War never had a pretty face, but the survival tactics of medieval warfare put a new meaning to the word vicious. Alright, that was a long tangent. Let us return, ah, to Paris, the delectable conflict. Once trade routes were cut off by Henry IV's men, it took merely weeks before the city's food stores dwindled down to a few measly bags of flour. Literally. This was much easier than trying to force entry. Attacking a well-guarded city such as Paris, even with an army of Henry's size, was far, far more difficult than simply waiting for the city to implode on itself, turn feral, begin to eat itself from the inside out. There were chapels and coffers, certainly, which stowed away food despite city ordinances. Citizens did their best to cling to what little stores they had, though it never lasted long. But maybe I'm not doing this justice. Maybe I'm just not describing this adequately, so let's get a little bit closer. Imagine neighbors needing to guard over their small gardens at all hours of the day and night, over those few little buds of tomatoes or squash. Imagine citizens scouring for weeds sprouting between cobblestones and town squares because there are no vegetables, there are no fruits, there's merely weeds. Imagine the families doing away with the dog, the cat. Imagine adding wood shavings to thicken up porridge. What about grinding up stone and slate and adding that to your dough? And we haven't even gone to the desperate measures yet. Pride, stubbornness, bravery, perhaps stupidity brought the city into general accord that surrender was not an option against the attackers at first. Though rations were enforced, no manner of charity or frugality could create sustenance for a city of Paris's size. Not indefinitely. But like many cities under siege, Paris would soon experience the horrific consequences of defending ideals. After the besiegers tightened their forces like a noose around the city walls, the signs of famine started. The Catholic defenders of Paris left for night raids against the Protestant forces less and less to drive them back. Murmurs for surrender within the city turned to pleas. Threats, once made at King Henry IV's men, turned to bitter curses instead towards Parisian nobility and the Catholic leaguers, growling just as anxious as the commoners. Families of status were selling off carriages for meat, and after that, killing their own horses, even beloved house pets, to manage a few more morsels. Holding out in a city under siege cannot be called a nightmare, it just doesn't do it justice. As time thinned the masses, the city stretched its imagination beyond all demand, turning bark to bread and weeds to delicacies. Common objects, so long as they were edible by some means, became tantamount to gold, while currency itself seemed to lose all value. Parchments, hides, cloaks and satchels alike, anything made of leather or at once contained moisture, was boiled until soft enough to tear, 
to spice, to devour, or be sold as preciously as fine cuts of meats were just months before. Bones. Yes, everything has a trail of nutrients hiding somewhere within its fibers. Bones of family pets or recently deceased would be ground up to add to soups or breads. And ah, yes, that brings me to that very obvious destination. The dead. They were beginning to pile up in the streets. Simple victims of starvation by the dozens every day. By nightfall, another day would have been pushed back against the brink. Survived. But in the morning, the city would awaken to find just how many hundreds it had failed in those few hours. The deep growl of deprived stomachs became a commonplace sound. The poor would often erupt in noisy and futile demonstrations, and as panic began to strike at them, the most destitute of society were cast out, forced upon the invaders. Of course, even in absolute bedlam, the hierarchies of wealth and power still dictated who would march to death first. Like rats, some 4,000 lives were tossed upon the pikes of the besiegers, while those who committed the deeds turned to face the city once more just afterwards, only to find it suffering the very same fate just days after executing this horrendous temporary solution. 1590 would be the year that Paris briefly lost its dignity, when families of virtue would discover cannibalism not so far beyond their palates. The bodies of relatives whom succumbed to starvation were consecrated not for burial, rather for supper. The guilt would eat away at those who indulged, but hunger's jaws clenched harder, and thus made breaking these boundaries a bitterly numb pain. It was within these extremes that families turned on their own. They're sick, they're young, they're elderly. One family was caught cooking their own daughter. Her limbs had been dismembered and butchered, tossed into a cauldron. The rest of her still lay on the bed where she had died, and, like countless others driven to such extremes by hunger, her cannibalistic relatives were given swift justice, sent to hang, and hang they did. The people of Paris, their dawns and dusks, punctuated by artillery fire and anxious screams, would quickly discover that the empty expanse of their stomachs was far greater than any capacity for morality. What lives survived the siege, though perhaps lacking outer wounds, would suffer fates far more gruesome and drawn out, more prolonged than death. It would be those poor devils who would have to live with the memories which demonstrated just how thin that barrier is between man and beast. The experience was ubiquitous throughout the city devastating. Unperturbed by wealth and titles, famine swept through the city faster than any plague. All were affected. It gave everybody an opportunity to show their true colors. The supposedly meek, humble, and righteous would be outed to having stowed away more than anybody else. One Franciscan friary in the city, whose ethos is take only what is offered and given as charity each day, had enough bread and biscuit to last an entire year. Authorities fell upon them, of course, and in the earlier days they were ordered to give away some of the stores every day to the destitute and dying. Nonetheless, such meager lights in the darkness proved not enough, as the shadow of famine would take a few bites out of all of them. The city watched its nobles turn into ghouls and its priests into thieves and hoarders. 
how it hollowed out the eyes and made bones appear to be abnormal protrusions beneath the flesh. But what's more harrowing still is that each of them had all felt it, a shuddering connection to visceral necessity, a state of being in which people judge themselves not by what charity they failed to lend, rather by the monstrous urges they just managed to resist. Not succumbing to the temptation to eat your alien sister, your grandmother. This, in the final days of Henry IV's siege on Paris, was all it took to be considered a good person. When Paris did eventually surrender, when those giant gates swung inward, King Henry IV's soldiers did not storm, but instead marched calmly through the streets. Normally, sacking the city would be a reward for the hungry mercenaries after such a long-winded offense. Raping, pillaging, feasting, and drinking, though an outlandish and horrific idea now, was in essence the common treasure and even basic motivation for many soldiers' efforts. But in the end, they decided against it. After all, there was nothing left to take. Paris was all skin and bones. This show is sponsored only by listeners like you. Isn't that something? Did you know that? It is written, produced, and edited entirely by one individual, and you're listening to his voice. So, if you are enjoying the show, I must humbly ask you to visit patreon.com forward slash harlequingrim to subscribe. There, you can find patron-exclusive rewards. But, if monetary support isn't your thing, and yet you still want to lend a hand, don't worry, I have you covered. Sharing this podcast to your friends or talking about it on your own platforms is just... Mm, superb, and more than enough. Now, back to the show. Well, this surely is a stretch from our last episode, isn't it? I'm sorry to say that essentially everything you just heard was entirely historical. The gruesome details about grinding up bones, scouring for weeds, the anecdote with the cannibalistic family, oh, that's all very real. It's inscribed into our DNA, and those instincts still haunt us to this day, a few measly centuries couldn't do very much to separate us from our medieval ancestors. The monster in this episode, of course, was none other than us. Throw in a bit of war, ideals, and hunger, and very quickly we peel back the skin of our beautiful masks to unveil a vicious, snarling, bloodthirsty darkness that is human nature. Of course, this angelic demon goes both ways. It swings us into paradise and plunges us into hell, back and forth, back and forth. So thank you, thank you, listener, for joining me for yet another historic plunge. I have to thank Lauro Martinez, whose history book, Furies, War in Europe 1450-1700, is a constant source of inspiration and practical application. Many of these details I had memorized from my reading this work, and only needed quick references here and there to make sure I wasn't exaggerating. And that is not a boast about my memory. Really, it's meant to tell you how gripping his work is because my memory is pitiable. And finally, I should thank Curious Fire for providing the audio and introductory theme. There's also Windswept, a Swedish one-man musical army who provides some of the tunes you hear throughout the show. How prolific this man is simply cannot be overstated. And that's it, ghouls and gals. So thank you, dear listener, for gracing me with your ears. I do sincerely hope you'll join me next time.